Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. Hello, friends. Today, we are going to share our latest ESEC Lending Huddle meeting for the month of October, where our team presents to our clients on macro trends and other areas impacting the securities financing landscape. Now, let's get into the huddle. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the huddle. Many of the people on the phone are coming back from a big industry event at the RMA in Florida, which is primarily borrowers and our trading desk, but Brooke was there as well. And it's rare to have that in the backdrop for today's conversation, as well as the continuing market volatility. So we are going to use our time wisely, and I'm going to go to Jim to kick us off and maybe give us some highlights of what's going on in the market, as well as the themes from down in Florida. Thanks, Pete. What's going on in the market? Up again today, so it's two days in a row. So we're trying to find direction here. So, so there are a lot of themes down in Florida with the brokers that are typical and that we've seen for a while. We did general and specific auction talk. And so that was, I thought, pretty fruitful. People are still engaged. We talked about the downgrade trade quite a bit. There's more demand than supply there on the street, but that's not atypical. We didn't talk a whole lot about specials. I heard from a number of brokers that on lenders' minds, the reduction in SPACs and IPOs, specifically SPACs, really hurt their revenue stream and their hard-to-bar performance in 2022. More of the same RWA constraints. A lot of the brokers were saying that almost every meeting they did was around RWA, had a solution for that. So that's good to hear, considering we are a disclosed lender that doesn't have RWA constraints. Lenders were concerned about unknown rates. So yes, they're higher, but the unknown just created a headwind that they wouldn't otherwise have. But unique to this particular, and then we talked about low leverage, almost everybody except for one broker said they were onboarding and utilizing leverage. More recently in 2022, but most everybody else who has established prime brokerage talked about lower leverage and a smaller long box. Same things we've been talking about for a while. Everybody said they had a pretty good 22 from a performance standpoint at the bank level, but not as good as 2021. Hopeful for M&A to come back next year, IPOs to come back, ETF hedging. So a lot of people talked about access to ETFs. The ability to hedge and move in and out of those hedges quickly is important to them and important to their clients they talked about long shorts still being active, but only in the liquid space. So while we've seen ESEC, I think we've seen over the last, since the summer anyway, at least September and October, maybe a little bit in the summer, we've seen better activity in the specials. But in general, folks said that isn't the case. We have a handful of names that are hard to borrow and expensive, but the long shorts aren't really partaking there. And that quants had outperformed almost everybody. We heard that from just about most. A lot of talk about the VIX and it was all more positive talk. Prime seemed to like it here around the 30 level and thought it boded well for the future. On the ETF comments, are there any specific ETFs you would highlight as interesting to talk about or just general broad market names? There was pretty good discussion around both the very liquid ones, Peter, that are GC in nature, but heavily utilized as well as the less liquid, hard to replicate, hard to create, which would be like bank loans, BKLN, MUB for munis, even HYG, JNK. They're liquid, but they can be hard to replicate. So it was kind of all aspects, ETFs, and a lot of chat about it. So it's a small piece of our business, but a growing piece. So it seemed generally pretty positive in terms of SEC lending revenue that's going to come out of that space on a go forward basis. 
One thing that was unique and I was surprised by, and we've talked about it a little bit here this morning, is the focus that's been on U.S. equity markets and potentially all DTC, switching over to a T1 basis, which would impact us and the brokers in that our recall cycle that currently exists today would be a mismatch to what the sell side settlement cycle is in the cash market. And so vendors looking to solution, brokers looking to find a best way to cope. It is still 18 plus months out. So not a major concern, but the market's looking for a technology solution, I guess, is what I came away with, but was surprised just in my mind, it was a future event and wasn't something we needed to be focused on now. I have two things to add on that. First is that we put out a podcast at the beginning of last week that had Pyram, one of the market technology vendors, as our guest. And there was quite a bit of discussion on the T plus one changeover and what that means for the market, specific to securities lending. So if you do want to know more, feel free to chat with us directly. But that podcast also might be a good resource and tool to tune into. But then the second is just one additional theme that I picked up, and Jim, you probably maybe could add more to this, coming out of RMA. So as Jim said, so much of the discussion is around the binding constraints that the banks and the dealers are facing because of all the regulatory capital costs and charges. But what's interesting is, is that probably you can almost parallel it to our business and that we are a differentiated lender that doesn't have the same regulatory constraints that our bank competitors do. But on the borrowing side, there are some players out there in the market that are not GSIBs and therefore, while they still, of course, have some constraints and some costs to deal with, they are in a slightly more flexible and better position than others. And I think the ways that an entity like that is finding themselves in now versus maybe in the years past in terms of the different types of trades that they can be in the middle of and or even providing unique indemnification solutions on one-off transactions for market counterparts, I think is a trend that we'll continue to see more of. So the comment there was, is they're finding themselves in a position where people that they may have never done business with, they're now finding lots of business opportunities to trade with them. And a lot of it is around the bigger GSIB banks needing to find solutions to solve for these regulatory capital costs and constraints. And we as an agent lender, I think are also in a similar position, albeit different, but I thought that was an interesting ad. I don't know, Jim, if you have other yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah, I would say some conversations with non-GSIBs had a slightly different focus. And so when we talk about supply with GSIBs, we get a lot of lip service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, broadening out who they set up, how many funds they have set up and ensuring access to easy borrows. It isn't really a focus, but uniquely here, any of the non-GSIBs that we had conversations with. So it was either established smaller primes, non-primes who have borrow needs, whether it's to support a derivative business or otherwise, there was a big focus and not lip service on access to supply. And so I think my colleagues would agree. We had a lot of meaningful conversations around broadening the ability to access our supply, even if it's IBM and Google. And so for these non-prime, non-GSIBs, so mildly encouraged by that is it shows kind of future concern of theirs around needs and covering their shorts. What are the specific things that the non-GSIBs have as far as an advantage versus the GSIBs? Is it just a capital calculation or aren't there single counterparty credit limits that are a factor as well? I know non-GSIB counterparts typically have to hold 3% of capital and GSIB is five. And usually even the GSIBs don't stick to that 5%. It's usually even higher than that. So I think just the widening range of how much capital they have to hold against some of these trades is mostly it. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. Maybe we transition over to Mark Wilson over in the UK. I mean, your home countries had a lot going on to say the least. So through that lens, maybe tell us what's going on generally over there. 
Yeah, thanks, Peter. It certainly has. It's been pretty murky here in the UK, right? We had the mini budget, which kind of sent the markets into a bit of a downward spiral that caused some interjection from the Bank of England. And what we saw there was it affected the gilt market pretty bad. I mean, it, the global markets in general have been pretty kind of yo-yo at the moment, but the UK market and the gilt market specifically took a massive hit. And a lot of it was down to these UK pension funds that had exposure to the LDI trade structure, the liability-driven investments. A lot of those investments in there are from index-linked gilts. So they track specific indices and they have just been tanking. The government stepped in with a four-week buyback program where they were, I think they were doing up to 10 billion at various points, different days. I think it happened every day for a month. But with an interest rate environment, the LDI structure, it can go underwater pretty quick. You know, we're in quick, large interest rates rises, and we haven't seen that for over 10 years, 12 years even. So I think a lot of people got caught out by it, and the Bank of England and the government, they refused to go any further than a month, told the investment managers to get their act together, sort it out. And post-Friday, which was when the program actually stopped, the market has rebounded and you know it looks like there's some positivity back in there so it was pretty hairy for a little while you know i heard people talk about default not a word we ever like to hear but you know the government stepped in they've done the right thing at the right time and you know we got through it but it's just another example of going into territory where we haven't been for a very long time you know there's a lot of people that haven't seen this kind of environment before but yeah we got through it you know Outside of the UK, so I know that we've started in, we talk a lot about whether it be through our podcast or this huddle, sort of our auction cycles. So I know we started our equity auctions outside of the US market recently. We have another big one coming up next week. What's the general temperature on that? Where have we seen more interest and demand year over year? Where aren't we seeing more interest and demand year over year? Any surprises for you and Jim and the team? Cheers, Brooke. We did have an auction. And we have four or five auctions upcoming. You know, the general theme out there, the general flavor is that, yeah, people will bid on good, stable portfolios. You know, people aren't bidding on every single lot that we put out there. People are very specific and they target um, specific regions and assets. So the emerging markets at the moment doing extremely well, Turkey, Israel, we're seeing very, very good bids there. The specials are thin at the moment. We've seen historically Germany, France, all have huge specials, but it's thin on the ground at the moment. If you look to Asia, we're seeing fantastic bids in Taiwan. It's the hottest market in that region at the moment. So I definitely think people are bidding. People still want exclusives. You know, Asia is always going to be a little bit more interesting because of the regulations. So yeah, collateral is key as well, Brooke, at the end of the day. It's becoming more and more apparent that people want non-cash. Dollars can be expensive, especially for the European counterparties. But you know, that said, as Jim mentioned earlier, there is a short supply of equities at the moment. So we did see some bids at our last auction from a European broker, and they had bids for some GC portfolios where they need equities, they need collateral. That's interesting. Okay. And with that, what would the collateral that they would be posting on borrows for a GC equity portfolio? Also non-cash or...? Yeah, yeah, non-cash. So what you're looking at at the moment is people are looking for top-tier indices and they're looking to swap them out for some of the lower tiers. So okay. people are looking for good German, good French baskets and they're looking to pledge back, you know, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian and things like that. You know, and obviously we run the risk profile. We have larger margins in place. So it's an interesting trade at the moment. Lots of people looking for collateral swap. Great. Thanks, Mark. 
Maybe we'll go over to Mike Brooks dealing with the continued tightening world. What did you hear down at RMA and how are you thinking about things both on the cash and also the treasury lending side of things? Yeah, I do think RMA is a good spot to start. A lot of the themes that we were hearing, pretty similar to what the equity financing guys were hearing from regulatory and risk type constraint perspective. We did just get through a quarter end, pretty much all in all unscathed. Balances were pretty good. But you know, the minute you get through Q3, all eyes already start going to Q4. So we had a lot of talks across borrowers, international and domestic alike. Year end starting to look choppy from a balance sheet perspective. Hearing a lot of talks about just the acronyms that we talk about on a daily at this point. RWA is a big one. SLR. The moves in the FX market are putting a little more pressure on some of the international banks, mostly Japanese banks for sure. And then haircuts all weighing on balance sheets in general. I think I've talked about it a lot in individual client meetings, just that 2% haircut. There's now an opportunity cost of you know lending that excess 2%. So all things that are maybe weighing on the bids that we are seeing. Not to say that we're not seeing bids. We've got a lot of our cash portfolio book. We have lined up already and have got a good portion of that into 2023 at some point. I think we're definitely going to be building in more liquidity and getting out ahead of year end, maybe a little earlier this time around that we did last year. I don't think we want to be caught in the last couple of weeks of the year looking for bids because although you might get financing there, you might end up being a rate taker at a point. So I think for us across our program, especially the large GC is diversity of the borrowers onboarding as many new borrowers that we can't have spread out, making sure we're not too dependent on one borrower. If they were to pare us down some, puts us in a tough spot as well as just getting out ahead of it early and really really, I guess, waiting our book more in the term space uh, than open. Obviously, once we lock up some cash into 2023, you can have more confidence and go spend that and take advantage of some of the windings that we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks to months here. Can I ask you a quick question about the haircut comment? Because you've mentioned this in a couple of meetings I've been in. So the 2% haircut because rates are higher is an opportunity cost for the borrower to pledge the 102 when we're lending them treasuries, right? Per se. So there are some people or some lenders that can take flat pricing or 100% collateral. And that would be an advantage potentially for pricing, right? Yep, exactly. Is that a price differential that's meaningful? Is it a basis point? Is it three basis points? You know, it was pretty immaterial when we were pinned to zero for a while. I think that's definitely starting to widen out. I would say it's definitely probably see as much as five or six basis points. And I think it's a better likelihood of stable balances, the borrower, better likelihood to roll and even add new collateral if we were looking to you know, get some bids. Okay, great. Thank you. Next is the idea of the collateral transformation, a big theme, upgrade, downgrade, depending on what way you look at it and what side of the trade you're on. Any kind of trade that can get borrowers some sort of netting from a balance sheet perspective, or help with some LCR relief or fill some of their buckets are definitely favorable right now. For my desk, the popular trades we've been hearing a lot are funding dealers' long cross-currency positions. Obviously, a lot of the moves in the FX market, as well as where we are in the year, when the basis typically widens over year-end anyways, we're seeing a lot of demand for those type of trades. So that's sovereign versus sovereign stuff. A lot of mortgages, CLO, CMBS, that banks are just either naturally long or they have clients the other way who are looking to finance, as well as investment-grade corps. So maybe stuff that doesn't fit everyone's profiles, but it's definitely trades that borrowers are looking to put on. We're also hearing the more you can do first cash and non-cash, it kind of increases your overall relationship with the borrower. And then come times of balance sheet, reporting dates, year ends, it helps towards your overall pitch of getting balance sheet. When every one of these desks now has a balance sheet optimization type team, or you know, a few guys are looking at that. And so balance sheet is typically a finite number. 
and how that gets allocated is really where things tend to vary. So the more you can do in their suite of products, the more wallet share I think you get from these guys come these stressful times. So definitely it was a main focus across the board and that's for domestic and international borrowers. And another thing we heard was the specials market. I think we've talked about this in the last couple of calls and with some individual client meetings as well. The street is very bullish on specials. Combination of rates increases and especially really sharp rate increases increases the short base on the on the run curve, as well as upcoming auctions for the on the runs are going to have no Fed backstop. So meaning the Fed's internal uh, SOMA portfolio is going to hold none. So there's just going to be a scarcity bit out there, a real increasing short base with the lack of supply in the street that only helps the cost for those who hold the portfolios. Also, a lot of the on the run portfolios gets allocated to some large institutional guys who typically don't lend. So if they're sitting on that supply, those who are in the market, that's only going to benefit those. I think we started to see some of those trends come true in September. I think we talked about the, you know, the first half of the year was a pretty active specials market across the curve. It was just nice having more borrowers in after a very lackluster 2021. And then some of the cash market moves against us kind of had a month and a half, two months of really quiet. But then September was a really active month there. Can you give us an example real quick of like a special in your space right now? Because I know we always think of your space as GC and specials means you know, 50 bips, right? It's a very different story in the equity space. But Yeah. So I guess the most recent example would either be the two year or the 20 year. So I guess one in the front of the curve, one in the back of the curve to kind of show the, the breadth there. Both of those were trading in the negatives and with rates were at zero, trading the negatives was something that happened a long time. But when OBFR sets north of three, and you're trading these at neg one, and sometimes even south of neg one, you're clipping 400 plus basis points through the middle there. So, you know, we had some clients that had good allocations in some of these, and they just stayed on for these trades were, you know, three or four weeks at a time. So you can really accrue some revenue there. Great. Thanks, Mike. We have a quick question too. The question was, can you refresh and give us really quick cliff notes on some of your comments related to ETFs? Yeah, sure. I just think at a high level. Hedge funds at the moment are more comfortable using ETFs to hedge the macro risks that they're seeing. And they're not getting paid for picking the right long short pairings in the market. We ESEC have a handful of standard ETFs, the spies of the world and HYGs, and those are mostly lent, which is if you think about the most liquid names in your asset space. So if it's the US, it would be an Apple and a Google, and you're going to see one, 2% utilization regardless of your collateral set. In ETFs, it's a much different world. And especially right now, you're seeing all that liquid ETFs on the long side out on loan. You're not getting paid a ton for it. You might get 10 to 15 bips, but you're getting paid and it's out on loan consistently. But the comment was really just hedge funds. They don't think they're getting paid for picking the right stocks that are going to go down versus the stocks that are going to be stable or up and putting those trades on because of the macro overlay. And so instead they're playing it through ETFs. And ETFs, you can get in and out real quick. It's unlimited float. You can create supply if you need to, and you can decreate to get at the special assets. Great. The other thing I would add to that is also you see some activity in names where you can't really get short the underlyings, right? And then maybe that's what you're going to say, like MUB and the you know, leverage loan ETF. So that, yeah. that was also, I think, part of your commentary. Yeah, that's accurate, Peter. Okay, great. Hope we're leaving you guys with something to think about and it's good use of your time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. 
Thank you for listening. 